the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 70, Eurovision. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we are joined tonight by... Paul Islesworth. Welcome aboard, mate. Nice to have you back. Now, my beautiful packet of fags have finally, (laughs) finally worn me down as Simon is licking his microphone. I'm I'm determined, (laughs) determined to get through this intro. We are going to do the Eurovision fucking song contest. Woohoo! Yay! Shine a fucking light. It's time to get out the tonic screwdriver and brace I think for that's impact. Love shine a fucking light. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight, boys and girls, we are drinking Drum Shambo, Gunpowder Irish Gin, and the info bollocks tells us, here at the edge of a lake, in a shed in a small Irish town, the ordinary is made extraordinary, within the laboratory of Rigney, boundary-pushing begetter of handmade spirits, who slowly distills gin with nature's finest oriental botanicals and gunpowder tea. Well, exactly. Wow. That's particularly bollocksy. It's forty-three <laughs> percent ice down. What do we think? Well, I'm getting the. It's made with gunpowder tea, and I am actually. I can actually smell that when what's, we. What's gunpowder tea? I can tell you what gunpowder tea is. Oh, <laughs> well, I, there's I, more. I shouldn't have asked. There's, the info bollocks on this deserves its own volume. <laughs> gunpowder tea from the Orient. This is a green tea that has been slowly dried. The delicate leaves then carefully rolled into shiny pellets. The flavour is bold and bright with a slight spicy freshness. Oh, yeah, that's definitely what I can smell. And it does have a very nice spicy smell to it. Yes, it does. Now, it's cloudy. It's a nice which, cloud in the glass. Which usually denotes an oily gin. It does, so mm-hmm. we could do martinis later. Although cocktails have historically not led to great podcasting results. <laughs> that is actually very nice. I'm liking that a lot. Oh, hello. Mm. Now, it's what we might term a standard gin. Uh, there's no particular dominant flavour to it. It's very tangy. But that is, that, that is. Yeah, it has got a tang to it. Mm. That reminds me, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, the Asda's premium gin. Yeah, a bit more tangy, mm. but I, I can see where you're coming from. I'm very tempted to give that a five. I love that. And tea and gin historically has been kind of the kiss of death. So Mason's Yorkshire tea gin. <laughs> Boo. This is working well. It um, is, yes. Uh, I, I like this a lot. It's a five from me. I can taste the tea in it mm. now that I know what gunpowder tea is. <laughs> but I, I can taste that and it's it's nice. Grab your glasses. Let's descend into the under gallery and open up the Black Archive. It does seem that there's only really one thing that we can pull out of the Black Archive this time, and it's the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, I've... Wow. Yes. Uh, the research all over the internet is scattered here, there, and everywhere, but I have found uh, what looks like a concise guide. The 1956 and 1964 contests don't exist in their entirety. There are small fragments, and I believe there are audio versions of both of them. Oh, thank God. Yes, thank goodness for that. Certainly audios exist for all of the winners, because we w- I've got the DVD mm. with the, the first 50 on, we'll do those later. You're not going to... It's not happening. <laughs> Don't think that you've got an in. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> uh, apparently, the 1984 version only exists on a domestic format, which seems a little bit odd, considering all the others are... What country was it in, in 1984? Was it Shit, somewhere? It was like war, I don't know. War-ravaged... With a Terry Wogan commentary, blah, 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 blah. 1971 also exists on domestic format. 
Oh, and several... You see, I'd never really thought about this. I suppose what we're missing, really, there are no no versions at all for 56 and 64, but a lot of the others are, are held by their broadcasters. Yeah, fair enough. It never occurred to me that each country actually produces its own Eurovision programme. Yeah, Terry Wogan didn't, wasn't broadcast across three billion people. But, oh, imagine how good that would it have been. Well... Up until the point where they told him he wasn't allowed to drink, and he said, "Well, what's the point? Why am I here? Frankly." <laughs> oh, anyway, let's uh, repair to the viewing room and see what we've got on the list. What we're going to do, rather than subject Ken to an actual edition of the Eurovision Song Contest, because <laughs> as much as Paul and I may enjoy that, he may want be wanting to. Strangle himself with his own tongue. Last night, bear in mind, this was about midnight. We decided after last night's recording session at midnight, we were very tired and we'd go to bed, at which point Simon poured extra drinks and we ended up watching six minutes, 12 seconds of Eurovision Song Contest winners from the 1980s. I wanted to rip off my own bollocks. That would have been... Less. Because it had finished. Oh, Christ. Anyway, please, please don't subject me to any more actual Eurovision. But we what have we got up enough. first? For, what's on our first on our list? What we're going to do is three sitcom episodes with Eurovision themes. And the first one that we're going to do is The High Life. Oh, splendid. Now, this was a 1990s sitcom. Uh, it was basically an Alan Cummings vehicle about a Scottish airline and... <laughs> The trials and tribulations of the airline crew, it's very tongue-in-cheek, so they they do a a wonderful, wonderful Batman pastiche, (laughs) which we will cover at some point, but they also do an episode where Scotland has permission to have its own entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, (laughs) and the crew of Air Scotia decide that they're going to put their entry in with hilarious results. Well, without further ado, run VT. If we're feeling kind of tedious, if life is seriously mediocre, here's how to get that adrenaline flowing. Just step up for the going, going. That was the high life, and I can't remember what the name of the episode was. Tube, tube, tube. 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 No, tube was something else. They, they all have weird Scottish, Scottish colloquial no. episodes, and the only one that I can ever remember is Dunk, which is the <laughs> um, the Batman episode. Was it Burl or something like that? It was episode five, anyway. Yes, anyway. (laughs) Episode five of series one of The High Life, and it was all to do with... The Eurovision Song Contest. (laughs) I knew a cave in the end. Right, so there were two plot strands running through the episode, and (laughs) one was the cabin crew's attempt to to win the Eurovision Song Contest as Scotland's first entry as an independent... (laughs) country and let's just say they weren't good it was the backing singers that let them down though the song wasn't great (laughs) edit monkey could possibly drop an audio file in at this point Sensations that I don't understand. For example, 
Well, they weren't judged to be good, but I've got to say, I'm, I've got that fucking song in my head. The bigger part of the episode was about the chief purser Shona's attempt to cop off with a, a rock star, who I guess was vaguely... Alice Cooper? Lead singer with the Bay City Rollers, I was thinking, but although he was gay, wasn't he? So <laughs> I have no idea, was he? Stuart, what's his face? Yeah, I think so. He died a week or two ago. Was he gay? I think so. Oh. I didn't know about that until I read his death notice, but anyway. The um, gay city rollers. <laughs> Piff puff puff. puff. <laughs> Piff puff puff. <laughs> nice. The question hanging over this whole episode has got to be, how did anyone ever doubt that Alan Cumming was gay? <laughs> He isn't. I know technically he's bisexual. Yeah, uh, he's, he, I think he's very vocally bisexual. Yes, but he's just married a gay, uh, well, presumably a gay man. Or a bisexual man. Yes, but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that bisexual or not, if he's married a man, perhaps the... He likes the cock. Yes. Or the bobby, as they say in Scotland. Anyway, what the fuck were we on? Tell us the... uh, uh, Explain the episode. I just kind of have. (laughs) What, is that it? Is that that 10-second praise? Yeah, I mean, okay, it was Shona trying to cop off with a, uh, a rock star. His kid's birthday party which i have to be honest is a bit creepy and stalkerish um and she gets off of the job as the kid's nanny isn't impressed by that and sticks the rock star's face in a cake well she kicks him in the bollocks and he nuts the cake although strangely doesn't get a face full of candles <laughs> well they were around uh, the edge i enjoyed that I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. And I've got to say, I know that we are not doing this episode. It will be the elephant in the room. Spoiler alert, kids. We're not doing a song for Europe. Father Ted. There's a moratorium on this from Doctor There is. I'm, I'm very sorry because I would love to do it. Yes, well, well, it would be fine if the if the guy who wrote it wasn't a massive knobhead. Transphobic, <laughs> transphobic <laughs> arse. I've, I've got to say, I've sort of... I'm sort of on the fence with this. I know that you two have sent me stuff that he's said. What? He has publicly doxxed and dead-named people. I, I really don't understand. Oh, no, the, the, no the, the dead-naming thing, I, I do. Uh, I don't agree with that and at all. I, to my mind, doxing is worse than dead-naming. Oh, just explain. What's doxing? Publicly making somebody's contact details and address... Yeah, yes, that, that's uh, that's fairly uh, reprehensible. Yes, I, I can't deny that. I think a lot of stuff that, bear in mind, I've I, again, I've got to say, I've said it before, I've not read everything that's been written, but uh, what I've seen does seem to be fairly supportive of the groups he's trying to support and the reasons why seem fairly... How about we take a step back from this? I think it's probably a wise idea, but but just to say, I have a more balanced view. I think that's larger because I don't know. How about we take a giant fucking (laughs) step back from this right now? You know, you can't just just cut me off. I can't. Damn it. What's next? But yes, feel free to whinge about the fact that we're not seeing Father Ted. We're still not seeing Father Ted because the writer is a transphobic fuckwit. I'm just sad we're not seeing Father Ted. I really like well, you it. Can do, you can do that well, on your own time. Fault. <laughs> anyway, what are we seeing next? I can't remember. <laughs> You're going to well, cut me off mid-flow and you don't oh, even have anything people. to we're going to see follow people. through with. Why were you pointing a fist in my direction I when you did that? don't know. Beautiful People is a sitcom about a memoir by Simon Doonan, who was one of the chief window dressers at Macy's in New York, I think. And he grew up in in Reading in the the 90s and didn't feel particularly supported in his sexuality. So kicked out against the restrictions that, that he had, supported by his best friend, Kylie, who was the lad that lived, lived across the road from him. And each episode of the first season is how I got my something or other. So how I got my scissors, how I got my vase and uh, and things that are important in his life. And one of them involves the Eurovision Song Contest when Dana International won. Paul, are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with Dana International. <laughs> I think he- <laughs> so I'll not say anything more about the plot until we've all seen it. And then I'll ruin it for all the listeners. Yay. I think you'll really like this. Ron VT. Don't let them go. Don't let them go. Tell them that 
Okay, this was an episode from season two of Beautiful People. So the character of Sasha, who was Simon's boyfriend in New York, has been written out and he now addresses himself directly to the camera. As with season one, it is split between his life in New York as an adult and his life growing up in Reading with his family. In the late 1990s. After splitting up with Sasha, he moved back to his family home in Reading. So you've got the combination between his life in Reading as an adult and his life in Reading as a teenager. And it, it again, it focuses mainly on his life as a teenager. And this particular episode is all about Simon and Kylie's obsession with a, um, a boy band and their obsession with the Eurovision Song Contest. And they have a, a, a new teacher who, by a fairly contrived method, gets them backstage admission to the Eurovision Song Contest when Dana International is performing. And they end up hiding in her dressing room. And the costume that she wore on stage had a whole load of feathers on it. And towards the end of the episode, they nick some of the feathers off of her, I think it's, was it Dolce & Gabbana, the, the, the costume? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they nick a load of feathers from that, and that's kind of it. Um, <laughs> beautiful People tend to be fairly plot-light, but very character-driven, and there are some amazing characters in it. Uh, Simon is, he's not the most entertaining character. Um, for me, his mother, played by Olivia Colman, is just absolutely hilarious outstanding um, her best mate is blind lives with them and her guide dog unfortunately she wasn't in this episode uh she's played by mira sayal it is a very funny ensemble cast so what did you boys think well i've been fortunate enough to see quite a few of these and uh to me olivia coleman is the standout mm. simon as a character is he's there but he's actually quite backgroundy, and I find the certainly with the first series, the whole book ending, the episodes with the scenes in New York, for me it doesn't quite work. I, I think it's because it's a different actor playing it for obvious reasons, but it's so removed, it's quite difficult to marry them together as the same character. Paul, what yeah. do you think? Yeah, I agree. It, the New York bits with the, when the adult one comes back to the UK. It just seems a bit pointless. It would be really funny as a sitcom of, about him and his best mate and the family. Except that it was written, because it's based on uh, a true story. I mean, the, the specific bits aren't based on, on life, but the, the general setup and the characters are based on a, a true story. And it was written by somebody who was a, a window dresser in Macy's, I think, in New York. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 kind of, I get that. And I, I I would understand if, like, at the very beginning of the very first episode, he was, hi, I'm Simon, I'm a window dresser in Macy's. <laughs> this is what happened to me when I was a kid in Reading. I don't really see why we need to then revisit, you know, with the... It's a nice of, idea. Yeah. I just don't think it really comes off. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather just see the... Mm. And the, actually, I agree with you on really, that because really good. there's very little in the New York bit that's actually funny. Yeah. The humour comes from within the family. I think it works very well as an ensemble cast. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Absolutely. It's, there's an episode in season one where Simon's grandmother comes to stay <laughs> and she's has turned from this lovely supportive person through mental illness and ECT to this absolute harrod and she's just horrible. And she's only in there for one season. She's played by Brenda Fricker. It's absolutely brilliant. Paul, I know you've seen one or two of these. Have you seen that one? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I've seen the... Uh, oh, where she blows up the microwave and ends up with a can of baked beans <laughs> yeah. in the back of her head. Um, and yeah, it is absolutely brilliant. And it would have been so much fun if they'd had her in for two or three episodes. Had, had a comfortable dynamic for a few episodes and then completely wrecked it by bringing her in. Yeah. Yeah, Rather I, than just as a one-off. That episode with her in, I hadn't seen any any of the episodes before that, and I thought that that would it would have been really cool if she suddenly underwent this massive transformation in this, yes. and but, then and then got killed by a can of beans. And they'd they'd already brought one character back by turning up as her identical twin sister. So, um, and I know she's not in any of the episode 
in the episode that we've seen today, but the local hairdresser dies during the first season and then her identical twin sister comes along and, and takes over the hairdressing business and it's basically exactly the same character just but with a slightly different name. Yeah, I really I liked it. I, yeah, thought, it, it, I thought it was a lot of fun. I'd not heard of this until Simon tipped up oh, in a previous recording session what seems like many lifetimes ago now. And I think we binged the first season, didn't we? Yeah. And, and then you it lost the was, I did. It was one of the recordings that my and hard drives, yes, never to be recovered, unfortunately. It's a, a hard drive. It wasn't a crash. It was a, a detonation. Yes. <laughs> but it was, it was just an entertaining way. I think we, we sat and watched all six episodes, didn't we? It was great. So it's one of those things where, um, yeah, I would happily watch more of it. The second season I'm less familiar with. I've seen one or two, and it's it's quite different, really, isn't it? It's yeah. not, yeah. But no, one of those things I'd, I'd happily see more of. I can recommend Beautiful People. It was great. Right, so shall we go on to the third of our Eurovision sitcoms? Oh, please. Ooh. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving this. And what we're going to watch is The Goodies. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Paul and me are uh, both 1978 models. It's a little bit before our time. I have seen some on repeats and what have you. Do you know The Goodies at all? I know of The Goodies. I don't think I've ever seen It was... Because uh, watching the episodes, they look very childish. But they were primetime sitcoms. It's Graham Garden, Tim Brooke Taylor, Bill Oddie as... Three people who will basically do anything that anybody asks them to. And each episode is a completely separate plot and anarchic and ridiculous and wildly entertaining. So why would they not do a Eurovision then? Well, it's not purely a Eurovision thing. There are other things going on in the episode and the Eurovision thing comes in partway through. But I love the goodies. And we it works. At that. We should really have a sound effect for an Exton Moss experiment crowbar. I think this might be one of those moments. A little bit. Run VT. You need a helping hand. Oh, you know, I love this man. Oh, but when you back to the end, you ever want to meet a friend? Goody, goody, goody. We should be definitely. Why? You should be loyal to me. We take a nanny or not. Anything, anything. Hi, hi, hi. Goody. Goody, goody, yum, yum. Goody. So, the third and final of our Eurovision-themed episodes tonight was The Goodies, Cunning Stuff. (laughs) 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 Dr. Exton, what was the premise? (laughs) The Goodies have set up their own newspaper and they're finding it a bit of a struggle, particularly because Bill is all moaning and lovestruck over the daughter of a... um, Toff, aristocrat, lord, whatever they are. Yeah, one of them. (laughs) And this particular aristocrat has said that his daughter can marry anybody who makes him laugh. So they've decided they're going to go make him laugh. And they turn up and they put Bill in a ridiculous red wig and giant comedy moustache and making ridiculous bibble noises. And when the aristocrat comes in, he has the same ridiculous fluffy red hair and uh, and handlebar moustache and makes bibble noises. So he doesn't find any of that funny. And they, they disappear off. Bill gets the sack for being sort of maudlin and useless and ultimately is replaced by the woman that he's mooning after. In the meantime, he goes back to her father to explain how he's going away and um, everything's gone wrong and he, he's still in love with the, this woman. And the father just finds this hilarious, roll, rolls about laughing all over the place and says, yes, you can marry my daughter. Bill goes back, meets up with the daughter who said, no, I'm far too busy working at this newspaper. And then sacks both Tim and Graham from working on the newspaper. After some really quite odd reverse sexism. Yes. <laughs> which was equal parts funny and uncomfortable. Because it, w- it was her doing the the boss and sort of, uh, tweaking Tim Brooke Taylor's bomb and all that kind of thing. And saying, if you, if you don't want it to happen, you, you shouldn't flaunt it. And, and all the, the stuff that... No doubt was heard in offices at the time, and probably still is, but in reverse. And <laughs> Bill has decided that he's going to ent- enter the Eurovision Monster Raving Looney competition, <laughs> which is where it's it basically like a sort of 
Darwin Awards where you go and uh, injure yourself in the most entertaining way possible. And the, the first part of it is a falling down competition and they have a, uh, a Scottish entry and a Spanish entry and a German entry who are all Tim and Graham in different costumes. And then there's Bill who just stands up and falls down, stands up and falls down and wins that competition. So then there's there's a whole load of running around with Bill trying to injure himself and failing and with Tim and Graham trying to prevent him from injuring himself and getting injured in the process, and they win the competition, and that's the end. <laughs> I remember watching The Goodies as a, as a kid, and I don't remember that specific episode, but there was one a couple of weeks later called Bun Fight at the OKT Room <laughs> that I do remember watching, and I remember my, my, grand, my grandmother absolutely howling with laughter at this. <laughs> I remember seeing one or two on repeat when we were little, but not in any sort of series. So, did, Paul, do you remember this? No, I've, this was the first time I've ever watched an episode of The Goodies. But so have you, you heard of it? Do you know of I've, it? I, yeah, I, yeah, I knew of it, uh, but I've never seen it. But in fairness, I didn't stop laughing all the way through. <laughs> I just, it was just, it was just stupid. Yeah. And it's really, really funny. It's very, very, very silly, but incredibly entertainingly silly. <laughs> Yes. The falling down contest where they're just all falling down, but to the national tunes of the, the Spanish people are dressed in Spanish dress. And then falling over. And then Scottish people in kilts, but there's bagpipe music. Like it's, it's just, the, it's so stupid. <laughs> Every episode is like that. It's all incredibly stupid and incredibly entertaining. And riddled yeah. with innuendo. Because this was sort of Saturday tea time stuff, wasn't it? It was, uh, it was certainly evening time. Mm. Uh, but it was supposed to be. It's family entertainment stretching it a little bit. I think that's it was what pre it was watershed, mm, yeah. though, wasn't it? Uh, but it's, as we've seen with that one, littered with innuendo that would have gone over the kids' heads. Yeah. Kids watching it would have thought that, you know, like the falling down bits were funny. But it, it's the same with a lot of successful comedies. Prince Charles is a flash. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I, mean, I completely forgot about that. The, yeah, Prince Charles exposing himself to various people. Worse than that, because the, the really smutty bit was that Prince Charles runs out of a car, flashes, and then Bill reaches down and picks up a hat, which means that not only was, was he flashing, but because there has to be something to hang the hat off. Oh, what a lovely story. What, Prince Charles with a stiffy? Yeah. Just a bit of reflux there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Attenuous. Uh, uh, well, there has to be a reason he is of that shape. Boys and girls, I'm glad that you can't see the actions that are going on here. <laughs> yeah. so is, but is, you can imagine. Is that it, you two? Have I, have I been Eurovision to bits now? Oh, no, no, no. We're going to go watch some songs. This is just a warm-up. <sighs> now you're in the mood for Eurovision. I'm not. I'm <laughs> I feel ill. A little bit of soothing music will help. And failing that, the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> right. You've had your Eurovision fix, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's the end. For now. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the first annual Exomos Experiment Eurovision special. Edit. And there goes Paul. Never Next to be time, heard I think again. we need a Eurovision drinking game. <laughs> you could do a live one. Stop it. Stop it, both of you. What a marvellous idea. You can do your own podcast for that. <laughs> the, the packet of fags Eurovision extravaganza. You'll be there. <laughs> the Europuff song conversation. <laughs> On that note, boys and girls, uh, for all of you that like Eurovision, it's Whoa. out there. For all of you that don't, uh, You're it, it's still out there I'm afraid <laughs> we'll be back next time with something completely different good night boys and girls bye now bye right that's enough of that apologies for the sound problems with Simon's mic on that recording he was channeling Gemini got out of that Anyway, to round us off, we have an interview with Peter Davison from my own personal archive. This was recorded at an event in the Cavern Club on the 4th of May 2008, and the interviewer is Erica Edgerton. Hello. Well, so 
Oh, Eric is going to get married and have babies, you know, so this could be the last Any time. Any volunteers? Queue <laughs> <laughs> up over here. <clears throat> okay. Right, so you're busy at the moment with work? Um, I'm not that busy, actually. I'm having, I find as, as I kind of get older, I, I'm perfectly happy to spend a few uh, weeks between jobs sitting on the sofa and watching telly. You know. uh, yeah, thanks very much. Just the right thing to say. Um, so I'm doing something in uh, July or August, I think it is. It's another thing by Sally Wainwright. We do, we wrote at home with the Braithwaite's. It's not like at home with the Braithwaite's, but, yeah. So what are you thinking of the new series of Doctor Who? Oh, yeah, I, um, I love it. I, I, of course, having two small boys, I watch it every week, usually two or three times. Um, I think I've already watched last night's episode twice. Uh, next week's episode, they'll probably be watching that 15 times. <laughs> Uh, you know you're going to be taken to Doctor Who conventions in the next few years. <laughs> I think that they're, quite, they're quite veterans of uh, Doctor Who conventions, actually. Yeah. So what do you think of David Tennant as the Doctor? I think he's excellent. I think he's a brilliant actor. I think, he's, uh, he's a, it's, I think it makes an enormous difference. Although I think Chris Eccleston's obviously a, you know, an excellent actor. I think the difference it makes to have someone who is fond of the series playing the part. I think just de is demonstrated. There's a kind of joy about, you know, what, what they do. Yeah, but yeah. Things. So I think that that, that, that uh, is very good for the series. Of course, you work with them for children in need. Yeah, that's right. Your fifth doctor. Yeah. Um, did you have to think about doing it, or was it an immediate yes? I don't know you to do oh it. no, it was an immediate yes, and then you go, oh my god, how am I going to do this? <laughs> Some years since I played this part, uh, and then they they um, were very good. They reassembled the costume. I had a bit of the costume, and then they borrowed a bit from, I think it was the Blackpool exhibition. It was all a bit tight, but, uh, but there was no truth in the rumour. This is like I said, there was some rumour that went around, I kept reading about, about how I couldn't fit into the costume, so they had to get Sylvester McCoy's. I mean, have you seen the size of Sylvester McCoy? I mean, he's, for a start, he's about a foot shorter than me, and he's not particularly thinner than me. Uh, in fact, I don't. I think quite the opposite. So the idea of me not being able to fit into my costume, but being able to fit into Sylvester McCoy's—I mean, I just—I mean, it would, the trousers would have been up there somewhere. Uh, anyway, no, I did fit into my costume, but it was a little bit tight. Which, and then the uh, um, Stephen Moffat, who wrote the, the bit, sort of put a bit in about you know. I, would, I couldn't quite do the jacket up. <laughs> I thought there was a lovely moment where David Tennant said you were my doctor. Well, I, did, I did get a bit of a yeah, my doctor, of course. I think that was what was, what was so brilliant about the, the scene. Mm. Because people, when, when they knew I was doing it, and uh, they would say, you know, is it a spoof? Mm. Or is it a proper little story? And I said, well, it's, it's not a spoof. And it's not, you know, it's, it's something that works on, on two levels. Mm. And that's what I think was so brilliant yeah. about it. We did work on two levels. It worked as the Tenth Doctor talking to the Fifth Doctor, and also worked as David Tennant talking to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it was just a brilliant... So now you've been back on set, would, yeah. you, would you consider if they asked you doing a proper episode? Well, I, I stress I think it's highly, highly unlikely they would ever ask me. Uh, but of course, no, of course, I, I, I'd do it. Do it. Sure, you, yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't shy away from it? No, you. no, I mean, you kind of have doubts about these things. You don't jump into it with... An enormous amount of confidence. I mean, I did feel when I went down to do the children need, and we had to do it. I was doing Spamalot at the time uh, in London, and uh, I had a beard. So on the Saturday night after the show, I had to shave my beard off, jump in a car, be driven down to Cardiff, and then be on the set. I think it's sort of like nine o'clock the next morning. Um, and it was all a bit of a whirlwind, and I, I had the scene, and unfortunately, I, I knew it. Um, but it was a bit of a shock. I felt very much like it wasn't my territory, you know, yeah. we did Doctor Who at Television Centre with fairly, you know, um, wobbly sets, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but they were, they were, of, it, it were yeah. of its time, you know what I mean, it was, it was how television was done in those days, and so I've no complaints about, about that, but, you know, down there they have what they call a standing set, yeah. uh, and it, it's obviously completely different to my TARDIS console. <coughs> has wonderful bits that like, you know you keep moving about and you can press. Which I did on mine, but they used to drop off on mine. <laughs> <laughs> but I was doing much the same thing. And it did strike me that um, that, that David Tennant did it in very much the same way 
as I did it. He just goes around pressing everything he can think <laughs> of to press, and then they put the special effects on afterwards, which is exactly what I used to do. Uh, and so I did that on his set. And he said to me at one point, he kept coming to this particular lead, and he said, um, I saw that leader wasn't in that position, and I said, I said, oh, that's because I keep moving it. He said, he said, that is the only lever that I have a designated use for. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it, but it was the handiest lever, so of course I kept moving it back and forth. Like, it was opening the door or something like that. Um, but it was great. Uh, uh, but as I say, I, I, after a couple of hours on the set, um, I really got into it, and. You know, then I could have carried on, but unfortunately, you know, it was an eight-minute scene or something. It would have been a ten-minute scene, but we spoke so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they anticipated um, uh, the speed at which we... I, I knew that David spoke very quickly, and I do as, I do as well on the set, so we rattled this scene off in a very short amount of time. You've had a very long and varied career. So, yeah. what, so what made you want to be an actor? Because you didn't come from a theatrical family. No, I think... Um, Absolute and total failure at everything else um, really sort of spurred me on to be an actor. I think I ended up with three O levels. But the first time I took them, I ended up with one O level. I think, and I got that at the lowest grade possible, grade <laughs> six, English, English language. Uh, and then I retook uh, some, and I got, eventually ended up with three, which, which really wasn't enough to do anything with. Um, and I don't think, I'd like to think it wasn't because I was uh, um, stupid. I think I just. I enjoyed school, but I didn't enjoy working very much. So I had fun, you know, and the teachers used to say, if you put as much effort into the, you know, the sort of, the fun bits of school, and <laughs> into the academic side as he puts into the fun bit, you'd end up with more exams. But, um, so I, I couldn't go to university, and I couldn't go to teacher training college, which a lot of my, you know, my contemporaries at school went, and uh, I, I had an interest in amateur dramatics, and so I just applied to a drama school and miraculously got in. Uh, and it was, it was great, you know, it was, but it, it wasn't sort of like a burning ambition that fired me from the age of, sort of five. It was so very much... you weren't one of these child actors who were... No, I used to work behind the scenes, actually. I worked, used to work backstage, doing the curtains and things like that, and techie, yeah. Um, but once you, once you go to drama school, it, it's just uh, fantastic. You don't have to write your name for three years. Do you value drama school? Hmm? Do you value, value drama school? I, I think, well, not, a, not really. I mean, I think they work for some actors, some potential actors, mm -hmm. because there are very sort of raw kind of uh, uh, actors who just aren't used to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And for them, it is useful. You've been taught but, by failed actors. Well, yeah, you are. Well, I mean, I suppose you could say, you know, you're a the whole... I shouldn't say this. I might, I've got a whole family teacher, yeah. But you know what I mean? You could, you could make that argument about teachers, if you like, but that's not quite true. <laughs> he said quickly. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, they're not only... I mean, at drama school, they do what they are there to sort of, you know, help actors in the same way. I think teachers are there, you know, to, because... They like the idea of, you know, helping young people out into the world. But I dare say, you know, at some point, you know, uh, uh, drama teachers wanted to be actors. And I dare say teachers sometimes wanted to be other things and they, they end up. But that doesn't mean to say that, you know. Um, so did, you, uh, did you work straight away when you came out of drama school? Um, I did, actually, yeah. I was pretty lucky. I was pretty lucky. I mean, can I just finish about drama school? Yeah, What's quite important is that I don't, I mean, my own daughter... <clears throat> Um, had, did not go to drama school, and uh, she just turned around to me one day and said, you know, I want to be an actress. And, I, and the temptation is to think that I, in some way, uh, you know, helped her do, do those things. In fact, I didn't. Um, but she had lived, you've got to remember, she was just brought up around theatre and around television, so it was no great mystery to her, and she knew how things worked. And I think that's the point, that's where drama schools help. They, they just teach you how various things were in theatre and in television. But I don't think you need to go to drama school. I mean, a lot of it uh, is to padding. A lot of it is padding. I think you could probably do a drama school course in about six months, actually, <laughs> if you put your mind to it. And you've got it all, not, you know, notwithstanding that you have the talent to act, uh, but that can't really, can't really be taught. Um, sorry, anyway, then I left. Oh, uh, sorry. Getting terribly serious. <laughs> went to work in the tax office. Uh, I went to work in the tax office, yeah. Which I live right next to now, funnily enough. 
Um, it's, not, it's not the building anyway, it's no longer a tax office, sadly. But every time I drive past Regal House and Twickenham, I go, that's where I was, up there. Um, yeah, um, but then, like, indeed, I was going to... Be, I, I was an actor for a while, and then things dried up, and that's when I went to work in the income tax office. And um, I would, in fact, have become permanent had I not lied about my qualifications. <laughs> because I, I, was, I, I joined as a temp, temp, and you don't have to produce the certificates mm. then. So when no acting work was coming along, and they said to me, yeah, yeah, you're quite good at this, why don't you sort of join as a civil servant? I said, yeah, why don't I do that? And it's regular money. So they gave me the forms, and I filled them all in. I got to the bottom, and it said, uh, you know, list your GCEs and produce the certificates. And then I thought, well, I know I'm really doomed. So I went in the next morning and said, oh, I've decided I really want to be an actor. <laughs> so if we move on to your yeah. time in Doctor Who, because that's what... Oh, right. Yeah. We talk about it. Okay. Do, do you look back fondly at your time in Doctor Who? I do, yes, oh yes, absolutely. It was a fantastic time. Yeah. I mean, it was full of, of frustrations, which like, I suppose a bit like bad holidays fade a bit, uh, until I sit down at those, uh, on those DVD commentaries and talk about it, and then you remember all the things come flooding back. Um, but, <clears throat> but it was full of, you know, it was full of wonderful things and full of terrible things. It, uh, when I did Doctor Who, it was at a time when they would turn the lights off at 10 o'clock, on studio days, regardless of whether you'd finished. The unions held total sway, uh, and, and they just, the, the lights would go out, or they'd stop the VT machines, uh, and we'd be completely stuck. Um, uh, and so you were always, the last hour of any studio day was a mad, mad panic to get things done. And sometimes they'd be done very sloppily. And, uh, you know, I dare say people watching the programmes don't notice it, really. Um, but we did at the time. You know, sometimes we'd be in a different set, we wouldn't know where the camera was going to go, and uh, it, was a, it was chaos. But I was also the doctor. Did you have any say in script? So if you got a script and you didn't like the look of it, did you have any say? I had no, I had no absolute sway. Did I mean, I could obviously... <laughs> I did try yeah. many, many times. I mean, I felt... One of the problems I came up against was after Tom Baker, because John Nathan Turner hadn't really got on with Tom very well, and there had been um, a sort of undergraduate humour element that came into Doctor Who in Tom's time, uh, uh, that was because of Douglas Adams being the script editor, <clears throat> and uh, lots of sort of in-jokes were going in, and John Nathan Turner hated them, so when Tom left, he took every element of humour out. And I, I love putting, I love humour in things anyway, so I was always trying to put it in. Uh, but I had to do it kind of sneakily, so you'd have to get them past John Nathan Turner and persuade them that it would work. Um, but that was the problem. But I had no, I had no, I could not say, I hate this script, rewrite it. I could go, you know, how about, what about if you try this? Or what about if he does this or he says that? Um, and then you come up with various ideas about companions and, I'd say, no, why don't we just blow him up? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, yeah, so he, he came up with various ideas about companions I wouldn't necessarily agree with. You didn't have to audition for the role. John Nathan Turner asked you. Yeah, he just rang me up one night and said that I'd like to play the doctor. Oh, did you consider turning it down? I did, yeah, I did, yeah. Because it, <clears throat> you know, I was, it's, it's what's odd now is that you almost think of the, the Doctor as being young. But when I first did the Doctor, you never dreamt of having a young Doctor. You know, the Doctor was always a sort of... You sat the trend, I did sat the trend, yeah. Um, but no, it's true. So, I mean, I just my first reaction was, I'm too young to play this. And I thought the only thing I had going for me was I could move a bit quicker than the others. <laughs> so I did a lot of running up and down corridors very quickly and speaking very quickly. I think John Nathan Turner wanted to update the show yeah. and having a younger doctor was the sort of way forward. I think he wanted to attract the ladies as well. Well, <clears throat> I think he wanted to make it <laughs> a younger image. But then, in the same, if he did that in, uh, um, for the ladies, he then went and really made a mess of it with the men because he suddenly covered up both the companions. Having put a younger doctor in, he then thought, I can't have young, attractive girls in skimpy outfits. So he mm. covered them up in my first season from head to foot. So he kind of shot himself, as it were, in the foot. 
because um, he would obviously he lost the you know the, the dad's element. Um, because okay, gain the young females. Uh, yes, three maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad I did it. I'm, I'm very glad I did it. You don't look back and regret it. Oh, no. <clears throat> no, it very much kind of uh, got my name known. You know, I was known as mm. the bloke in the vet series mm. before that. <laughs> um, but when I'd done Doctor Who, they kind of knew what... Uh, did you do any research? Did you watch any old tapes or anything? Uh, uh, yeah, I did. Um, I, I, what, I, what I decided was that Tom Baker had done it for seven years, so I didn't really worry about him at all. <laughs> Um, well, because, you know, people knew Tom Baker, but I wanted to go back to the old the doctors that I'd first watched, so William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton, and John Pertwee. So I re-watched their episodes, some of their episodes, and just tried to bring elements of them into my character. My favourite doctor, as we well documented, was Patrick Troughton. Um, so I wanted to bring elements of him and of William Hartnell, who was the, you know, the first doctor. Is it true that Patrick Troughton told you to just be three seasons and then Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a thing. It's absolutely true because what what happened if, um, was there's a, there's what they call the horseshoe car park in front of Television Centre, and uh, it's mainly reserved for executives on the sixth floor, it, unless you are someone uh, playing an important part. You see, now I hope I. I had worked with Patrick Troughton once in an episode of All Creatures Grand Horse, so I sort of knew him. But I, I, I drove up to Television Centre one day, and Patrick was in the car in front of me. Um, and he turned, he was having to turn his car around because they wouldn't let him in the car park um, anymore. Because obviously, got when, he, when he, yeah, I got in because I was doctor, I was the doctor, and he wasn't anymore. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, uh, he just said, uh, "Do three series and get out. Do three series." And um, and it wasn't only, that wasn't the only reason I did three series. It was that I'd done three of all creatures. I'd done a comedy series, um, Sick or Swim, for three series, and, and three series just seemed enough. It was not, not too little. Did not you always have that in your head? I'm only going to do three. Yeah, I did. I didn't rule out doing four, but um, I kind of knew it was frustrating. I was quite I was quite young, and I remember seeing contemporaries of mine in the rehearsal block coming in and doing things and then going away and then a couple of months later they'd be back doing something else. And I was still playing the doctor and I just wanted to do other things. I, think. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's good for security, but you always think, well, Hollywood could call or, you know. Well, that, I mean, that's the great thing about, the great and the terrible thing about unemployment as an actor is that your heart kind, does kind of sink when you get a long-term job. Mm. You think you'd be going, hooray, fantastic, mm. but when you're looking forward to two, maybe three years of the same job, mm. it means that magical phone call can't come. Oh, or if it does come, you're going to miss out. So, yeah. in a, in a you way... You can't have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. There's, a certain, there's a certain kind of excitement from being unemployed, sitting at home on the sofa, <laughs> watching a day, <laughs> ring, damn you! <laughs> uh, um, so, when you got to your last season, I mean, obviously your last season was your best season. In my opinion, mm. sorry, in my opinion. Yeah. You get to the end and think, oh, I want to do another one. <clears throat> well, it's, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sorry I left after three series, but I mm. think probably had the third series been the second series, if this makes any sense yeah. to anyone, I might well have done a fourth. The second yeah. series, which is what I had to decide, I had mm. to decide at the end of the second series, mm. which ended with Time Flight, or Time Flight was heavily featured in my thinking. Is it first season? Oh, first well, season, yeah. It, well, the overall, uh, uh, overall kind of effect of it was just things were frustrating. Yeah. They wanted to get rid of uh, um, uh, uh, Nissa, who I liked as a companion, mm. and I just felt, I don't know, I just felt that I should leave. No, I'm not, not, not I, I, just to confirm the three series thing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, having said that, when I got to the end of the third, I didn't regret it, but I thought, mm. I do remember thinking if, if this, had, if this had been the series, well, I had to decide, I probably would have... You would have stayed another, another year. Yeah. So I think, I think Kajan Rosani is just brilliant. I mean, yeah. That's my favourite. Yeah, it was. Does anyone have any questions for Peter? Whenever I listen to the commentaries on, on these DVDs, everyone says it's a very hectic schedule. Yeah. In your comparison for the other series you've done, was there any more yes it was much more hectic than any other series you ever do only because um, 
the time allotted per sort of minute was probably was the same. But with Doctor Who, even though we were dealing with fairly primitive effects, they always take a long time to set up. You've got to set up green screens and things like that. So you'd always be behind on the schedule because they, they leave you the same schedule, they give you the same schedule it would take to shoot an episode of The Brothers, say, or something like that, or Creatures, um, which clearly, you know, wouldn't take as long because it was just in a, a standard set. But when you've got rubber monsters and, you know, uh, robots that don't work and things like that, uh, it just takes time. Um, and it would always end, as I say, in this, this supply panic. Hi, Peter. Uh, Hi. Doctor Who fans seem to divide into two halves. Those who think your professional name is Peter Davidson, um, <laughs> and the half who get annoyed with the other half. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when, you were on, um, when you were on Nebulous on the radio, the, the radio continuity announcer announced it as starring Peter Davidson and Mark Gratis. <laughs> really? Is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah. No, we know that's not your real name. Um, on, a, on a DVD extra recently where you were interviewed back on Swap Shop with Mike Reed, you were, you were getting... You were quite coy about, oh no, I'm not going to tell you what your real name is. Yes. I'm interested in what, what your thoughts of well out were. Why you chose Davison? And do you ever wish you'd chosen something that everybody could get right? <laughs> <coughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the, the re I don't know why the reason you don't reveal your real name is. I suppose it's a certain kind of anonymity. Um, admittedly, you don't have that if you're using your own name as an actor, but... I suppose it's just my little secret. It was my little secret until my daughter made a mess of it by going into the business <laughs> with my real name. Um, so thank you, Georgia. Um, yeah, I, you know, Davison, it was at a time I had to make my, I did actually work for one, three months under the name of Moffat at Nottingham Playhouse, my first job. Uh, and then Equity came through and said there was um, already uh, a member of Equity called Peter Moffat. Or that although he, he wasn't an actor anymore, he was a director. Uh, he, he sort of reserved the name. So I had to change it, and we sat around in the green room going through names, and it was at a time when actors would choose really boring names. And Davis, all the Davises were taken up. Uh, and, and the sort of Bates and the Smiths and all that. So, and someone said, what about Davison then? Uh, so I said, that sounds all right, yeah, so we chose that, out of the blue. No, there's no connection with Davison and my family at all. There, then it turned out, when they equity uh, agreed to that, that there was actually an actor called Peter Davidson, who um, was very cross about me <laughs> working with the name Davidson, especially as he lived, it turned out, three doors away from me. In which way, he came to my... He came to my um, well, what happened once was, he, uh, I got a phone call from my agent saying... Um, Oh, they've offered you this uh, part in a play at Brighton. Uh, it's very last minute because uh, they thought they'd offered it to you two weeks ago, um, but they actually offered it to Peter Davidson, and he accepted. And then they found out last night that it was a completely different person. So they had to ring him up and say, I'm sorry, we don't want you. Um, uh, and then they offered it to me. I didn't, I didn't do it. But then about a week after that, there was a knock on my door and uh, I opened my door and then somebody shoved about a handful of letters into my face going, I think these are for you. Uh, and it turned out he was Peter Davidson and they delivered various fan letters to him. And then, believe it or not, I worked with him about five years later in an episode of All Creatures Great and Small. And at lunch he said to me, this is bearing in mind that I, this is, we're after, the, after Doctor Who now, we're sort of, after we've gone back I think to All Creatures, but I'd done various series, and he said to me, don't think it's about time you thought you changed your name. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think I can really do that. <laughs> Nobody knows who you are. I mean, it's just a bit dark. I mean, uh, anyway. Did you say that to him? Well, I kind of said, I don't th I think, I think my name is now established too much to change it. I tend to do it in a polite way, but that was... Robert Hardy, who was at the table at the time, was absolutely furious with him uh, and said, "Totally stupid." <laughs> <laughs> you should have told him to change it to office. <laughs> Any more questions? Uh, go on, Ken. Yeah, when you did *Misbehaving*. Yeah. Where did, where was that filmed, and would you have liked to have carried on with it? Um, uh, *Misbehaving* was filmed in Harrogate. In, in Yorkshire, 
And I think, I, I quite like the first series, but it, it was one joke, really, I felt. I felt. I mean, they're, they're very well written. I, 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 well, kind of well written. Uh, <laughs> and I enjoyed doing it, but I think we kind of got to the end of the joke, really. Unless um, you'd have to have a, a, sort of a, a very special writer to make it into something else, a bit like Sally Wainwright did when she wrote Home of the Braithwaite who managed to take sort of one idea and spin it on its head and then back again and, and make, you know, manage to you know, make it a, a, a long-running thing. But I just felt we were playing the same joke after the first series. We've got time for more questions? Yeah. Um, Live just there? Yeah, you. Hi. Hi. Uh, your favourite story is Ambassani, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, recently you worked on Circular Time, um, which was an embellishment or a further detail of that story. Into too much <laughs> I was wondering if you were, you know, how much you enjoyed exploring more depth to what was actually happening in episode four, if you like, because of the story of the cricket game. Yes. Um, the story, I can't remember all the episodes. Nor can I. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it, but I mean, the thing about Case of Androzani was it was a combination of a uh, great writer, uh, um, Graham Harper, who just uh, brought a completely different style to doing uh, Doctor Who than anyone had ever done before. And I remember for the first two or three days being kind of just taken back by what he was doing. Like, you can't you do that? You can't do that. So someone running around with a camera on their shoulder and crossing the line and doing all this stuff. Um, and then you kind of realised what he was doing and you went along with it and it became tremendously exciting. Uh, and we had a very, very good cast as well, I think, for that show. Um, and I think it was a combination of all those things which made it kind of special. So it was nice to do the kind of extension of it, but it wasn't quite the same thing. You know, I mean, it was a very, it was a very special recipe, I think, yeah. that, 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 you know, that story. Did you enjoy doing The Last Detective? Yes, I did enjoy doing The Last Detective. I don't think they are going to do anymore. No one is actually officially, no one actually officially cancels anything these days. But they just don't say we want to do another series this year. But I would do, yeah, because I just love, I love the idea of the character. You know, it reminds me of a series I was very fond of um, when I was growing up called Public Eye, which was a series with Alfred Berg, which is just about a very kind of ordinary guy who was a private detective in that case. Uh, and the stories were, in a way, quite small stories, you know, and I, I just wanted to do a series about uh, just a policeman who was just like, a, a, enjoyed his job. He wasn't, you know, the great, um, the great sort of sleuth, and he wasn't someone who burst into rooms and slammed his fist on the table and took people by the scruff of the neck and ran them up against walls and said, you know, tell me the truth. Uh, he just went about his job, and he, and he was an okay bloke. There you go. Uh, Practice. Yeah. Did you have any specific ideas of making things different? Very peculiar practice. It was, I mean, again, it was a, a, written by Andrew Davis. It was excellent scripts. You didn't really. It was the first time that I come across scripts that you didn't want to change a word of. That you felt were so well written. You know that that um, you, you didn't know better. And very often when you're doing things like Doctor Who or all creatures, you, you, you change little lines here and there because maybe they don't fit your character. But with uh, Stephen Dakin, very peculiar practice. You just felt <clears throat> this was something very specially written. And the, the character was there for you. You know, you just had to play the lines that were there. And they, they sort of came off the page. I didn't ever think about him being like the Doctor. I suppose he's a Doctor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I, I suppose the, the measure of the script is I never, it never really occurred to me until <laughs> people later point out that I've made a career of playing various forms of Doctors, whether it will be vets or... Well, I did play. Uh, um, I played in a two-parter, ITV two-parter, uh, a, a couple of years ago. It, it was called to "Too Good to Be True." I think it was called. And um, oh, but you're still quite nice in the beginning. I was sort of nice, but then I wasn't very nice by the end of it. And my mother was very disturbed by it. <laughs> she couldn't understand it. What quite? I think she thought that was really me underneath. <laughs> but she, she said, understand. Understand how you could do that. I'm an actor, and, like, it's kind of, um, and, and although it's nice to do that sometimes, it, it, what it really does is make the experience of coming back to a kind of a nice part 
nicer, really. And, and, and you're, what you'll find is when you meet actors who have spent careers playing sort of evil or rather disturbed characters, they just want to play nice guys. They do, it's true. But unfortunately, they're, they're, they're stuck. In the same way that I am, maybe. You know, I, I think I'm sort of stuck with a fairly, fairly sort of genial face and friendly sort of thing. And in the same way, they're stuck with slightly dodgy. <laughs> People think there's something slightly dodgy about them, and it's not. It's just a kind of accident of, of nature or their, of their voice, and they're desperate to play nice guys. But I did fancy something once, and I, I was working with this actor, this player, uh, this really unpleasant character. He wanted to swap. I said, yeah, well, if we can persuade the producer, you know, we can swap. We'll just swap parts. And you play the name because we went to the producer and went, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, there you go. How did they get the part in Spamalot? How did they get the part in Good question. Um, it was a very, very long process. And um, uh, I went for auditions first of all and learned a song and sang it in London. And then everything went quiet for about uh, uh, six weeks, I'd say. And I was on the verge of accepting another job, um, a play. Which was okay, but I didn't, wasn't really that, that desperately keen on it. And I got a phone call from my agent saying, would I mind getting on a first-class flight to New York um, in two days' time to meet the uh, New York director? And I said, oh, I think I could possibly manage that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, just, I went along and um, I, I had my uh, 20 minutes on a Broadway stage. Uh, and, um, and got the part. And weirdly, I got the part because I screwed it up completely. I, I think actually much better at auditions when I make a mess of it. Because I was on, I was on the stage, I don't think I was doing very well, and um, we came to the song bit, uh, and uh, I started the song, because they, they changed the key in the New York production. And I sort of had in my head the sort of London production key, and so I just started off in completely the wrong uh, key. Well, and, let's, uh, let's, uh, George, let's hear Well, I can't, because I need a piano playing in a different key. I don't know. <laughs> let's hear a bit of fun. What? Because I never got to see the show. I'm all before. alone, all by myself. Anyway, I was singing that song <laughs> in the wrong key. Uh, and, um, and then I realised it's in the wrong key. And I just went, oh, bugger. <laughs> Uh, and at which point, um, uh, Mike, what's his face, <laughs> famous film director, uh, fell off his chair because he was such a Monty Python thing to say. He said, you bugger. You'll know from the end of the Spanish Inquisition scene if you're fans of Monty Python. Um, anyway, and I think that's what got me the part, really, rather than the song or any of the scenes. Just to... I want to get you to dance, but you have to dance a little bit as well. I did dance a little bit. Oh, yes, I did have to dance a little bit, kind of, yes. And very often I would do it completely wrong, but as someone said to me, well, you're the king. It doesn't make any difference. It just makes everyone else look wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great. I loved doing it. Last one. What do um, your kids think of your portrayal of the doctor? Um, I am second favourite doctor in my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, second favourite. I think I'm second favourite. I'm definitely not first favourite. I might even be third. But uh, in my daughter's house, I'm very definitely third. Uh, my, my daughter's son, Ty, uh, his favourite is Tom Baker. Uh, followed by David Tennant, followed by me. And he doesn't seem at all reticent of telling me this. Even when I'm threatening him with a baseball bat. Um, yeah. I think they were very excited by, um, by me doing the David Tennant. My, my children came down to... Uh, to Cardiff when I shot the, you know, the scene mm. with David. Um, and they're very excited by that. So I think I gained credibility uh, from that. <laughs> but it wasn't enough to make me the favourite. Oh. Exactly. Where are they here? Hey, oh, come on. In Doctor Who, where was the Five Doctors filmed? Uh, the Five Doctors, the location bits were mainly filmed in Wales. Um, North, North Wales, I think it was, or Mid Wales. I know it was an hour and a half for the nearest... Um, cold. It was cold. Anthony Amy was very scared um, <laughs> uh, of the BBC Special Effects Department. Yeah, it was very, very cold. And we were in a very bleak area. I know we decided we, uh, uh, on the Saturday night we were going to go for a drink at the, at the local club, which turned out to be um, 50 miles away. 
And we just got in this Land Rover and drove and drove and drove. By the time we got there, we got out, had a drink, had to get back in to drive <laughs> all the way back. Yeah, Wales. One, one, one more. Oh, yeah, go on. Go on. Eat it for me. After Button, we'll follow Mr. Spoon. Button, Button, we're after Button. That's it for this episode. Next time, we're back with a look at the Tom Baker Doctor Who story, The Stones of Blood. Until then, thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Ta-ta. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.